Proverbs chapter 1, we'll in just a moment begin reading in verse 8. We're working through, starting as of last Sunday, a study of the book of Proverbs. Uh, We'll spend three or four months in the book, not covering every single verse, but certainly getting a a feel for the whole. Uh, And today we find ourselves in chapter 1, and our text begins in verse 8. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason, like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning recognizing that every single person in this room, every single person on this earth is on a path, a road, and every day, every decision that we make leads us further toward the destination toward which that road is taking us. Father, we're sobered by the reality that not all roads lead to happiness and blessing. Some lead to death and destruction. And Father, as we think about ourselves, our kids, our relatives, our co-workers, the folks in the chairs around us, our neighbors, it's our sincere desire to, to see every person walk the road that you would have us walk. And that's the road of wisdom. So we, we ask that you would give us the knowledge and the spiritual strength to get onto the right path. And Lord, if there's anything that you show us from your word this morning that uh, demonstrates to us that we have been walking down the wrong path, I pray that you would give us the humility and the brokenness to change course and to do it today. Father, we pray not only for ourselves, we pray for the churches uh, in our community. We ask specifically for High Ridge Church and Pastor Ryan Sims as he uh, continues to shepherd that congregation and uh, opens up your word today. I pray that your spirit would be uh, at work in the hearts of everyone there and that you would be glorified and that many would come to Christ. Uh, Lord, we pray the same thing for everyone uh, in our city 
And we ask it all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Not being born and raised in Texas, I don't always understand the hype associated with this state. I really don't. Now, I, as the saying goes, I got here as soon as I could. But it's not always clear to me why we need Texas-shaped cutting boards and plates and bowls and earrings or whatever else Texas-shaped things that you need. There is, however, one cultural artifact associated with the state of Texas that I find just absolutely awesome. Larry McMurtry's prize-winning novel, Lonesome Dove, in which a group, amen, in which a group of longtime friends who happen to have spent most of their lives as Texas Rangers drive a herd of cattle from the Rio Grande all the way north to the territory of Montana. It's a masterpiece. It's a joy to read. And yes, the book is far better than the miniseries by the same name. But the story is nevertheless a tragedy. McMurtry says as much in the preface to a later edition of the book. It doesn't leave you without hope. There's optimism in the story. But most of the main characters exhibit a tragic flaw that in some way or other, by the end of the story, leaves them alone, destitute, or dead. And nowhere is this more in evidence than in the case of a young ranger named Jake Spoon, who had started rangering with Gus McRae and Woodrow Call when he was only 19. Like many of his colleagues, Jake was a man given to the passions of the flesh. He was a fornicator, a drunkard, a gambling addict, and perhaps worst of all, from the perspective of his friends, he was a lazy and changeful man who could not be counted on to uh, be there in times of need. But none of those vices were what got him in the end. For all his weaknesses, Jake was pretty harmless by the standards of the day. But he did have one fatal flaw. He wasn't choosy about who he rode with. He had little discernment when picking his friends and acquaintances. So one day he sat down for a game of cards with a gang of, of, of rough men As the game progressed, their leader made Jake an offer. Join us, he said. It'll be fun. We'll make a lot of money. You're not committed to anybody else right now. Why not take up with us? Jake agreed. But the men turned out to be a sadistic, controlling, murderous gang who assumed they could plunder and pillage without anyone finding out or even caring what they did. By the time the rangers caught up with the gang, they had stolen a passel of horses and murdered in cold blood a sodbuster and his family as Jake looked on in helpless regret. Uh, Frontier justice is clear. Jake was considered guilty along with the rest of the men in the gang. As he was placed atop his horse, hands bound, A noose around his neck, Jake began to protest to the men who had known him since he was a teenager, men who hated the fact that they had to do what they were about to do. Guys, you know I'm not a murderer. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't mean any harm. And Gus's reply was sad, short, and to the point. You know how it works, Jake. You ride with an outlaw. You die with the outlaw. I'm sorry you crossed the line. Hanging on to his last shred of dignity, tears in his eyes, Jake said a brief goodbye, spurred his horse, and dropped like a stone. 
Today's passage in the book of Proverbs, it's the first of 12 speeches spread across the first nine chapters of the book. Each of them is addressed to a son. In 10 of them, it is the father speaking. Two of them, it's actually Lady Wisdom who is speaking. But these 12 together comprise a lengthy prologue to the book. Everything else is built on the wisdom of these first 12 speeches. But I think it's significant to note That out of all the ways the father could have started his series of lectures, and by the way, I just think it's awesome that this biblical father lectures his son. Back on track. It's significant to me that when he begins this series of 12 lectures, he doesn't start out by saying, my son, avoid sexual immorality. Or, son, don't be a lazy bum. Or don't be a drunkard. He doesn't say any of those things. The first thing he asks his son to do is to be careful who he hangs out with. Watch out for your partnerships, your friendships. Here's the essential message of this passage. Don't go with the gang. Don't go with the gang. If sinners entice you, Do not consent. And and the Father communicates this message powerfully in three main movements. You can kind of see them broken out right there in the text. He says three times in this passage, my son, my son, my son. That's repeated in verse 8, verse 10, and verse 15. Notice, first of all, that he calls our attention in verses 8 and 9 to the son's position. The son's position. If we are going to be equipped to withstand the enticements of the gang, the allure of the wicked, then we need to know who we are among God's people. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. Verses 8 and 9 are sort of an introduction to all of the 12 speeches in the opening chapters of this book. Before the the son receives instruction, he must be reminded that that instruction arises out of the context of a covenant relationship. It comes from his father and it's confirmed by his mother. Under the old covenant, there's a clear relational structure uh, in which the, the son is given a favored position. Its foundation is, as we saw last week, the fear of I am, the covenant name that God revealed to his people when he rescued them from slavery and promised to make them a nation of royal priests. God's people begin by remembering that I am is present with them, that he's pure, that he's powerful, and that they're utterly vulnerable to and dependent on this one-of-a-kind eternal God. Within the community who fears I am, God has appointed a king to lead his people. That's King Solomon. His name is mentioned in the very first verse of the very first chapter of the book. And then the father administers his household under the authority of the king with the support of his wife. And yes, if you pay close attention to the details of these first nine chapters, it's the father who takes the initiative, men, to instruct his family with the wife's support. And then the son enjoys the benefits of belonging to this covenant community and he is enjoined to receive instruction in the context of relationship. That's the old covenant. Nowadays, we don't live under that old covenant, but in the new covenant community, the structure is little different. 
According to passages like 1 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, the structure is similar. God the Father is the head. Christ rules in subjection to him. The church, shepherded by elders, is the body of which Christ is the head. The husband is to lead his family self-sacrificially with his wife in glad submission to that leadership. And the children, according to Ephesians chapter 6, are to obey their parents. Now, I cannot emphasize enough the importance of this, this, this arrangement, this relationship. We get distracted by gender issues, but don't miss the main point. Often we think of God's commands as conditions for his attention and his blessing, but that's not what they are. It's not do what I tell you and maybe I'll commit to you. That's not the way our God operates. Never in scripture does God approach us this way. He's much more like a wise father than an exacting boss. He isn't sitting you down for a performance review. His commands arise out of his loyal love. He isn't saying, do what I say or you'll be fired. He's saying, do what I say because I love you and I know what's best for you as my child. You understand the difference? Very different. And if I can just say as an aside, in our church and in our home, it is our responsibility to take our place within the covenant community, not to demand compliance as a condition of our love. Sharing wisdom and instruction has to start with a commitment. I am not going anywhere. I am not looking for things to justify me leaving you alone. I'm not trying to kick you to the curb. I want to stay committed to you. And I just wonder if our church and if your home, to the degree that you have anything to say about it, is reflective of the committed covenant structure of the household of God reflected in the book of Proverbs. He says over and over and over again, my son, the one who's going to inherit everything I own, the one who bears my name, the one who I've given an identity to, the one for whom I will always have hope, the one whom I will never give up on. As sons and daughters of the king, we are surely in a privileged position. Hear your father's life-on-life instruction and warning and encouragement and admonition. Forsake not the teaching of your mother. When you are in that sort of position then it's important that you recognize that God's commands, God's instruction, God's wisdom to us are not a burden. They're actually a blessing. Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, they're a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. You say, well, I'm not really the jewelry type. Okay, these have uh, an actual meaning and significance in the ancient Near East. The wreath upon the royal head and the pendant around his neck were signs of victory and triumph, honor and success and happiness. Notice that the teachings of the father and the mother, they don't just bring joy. They don't just bring victory. The teachings are themselves the adornment. That is, when God gives us his instructions, those instructions are themselves a blessing. We see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. God said, let's make man in our image. And he put the man and the woman in the garden. And, he said, and, and it says, he blessed them. And he said, and began to give them instructions. In other words, the mandate was itself 
the blessing? Do you believe that? Do you believe that when you, in the context of your household, provide instruction to your children, when you discipline them, that you are blessing them? A lot of miserable kids out there because their parents are withholding the blessing of godly instruction. Do you believe that God's commands are a blessing to you? That they aren't to be explained away, but to be appreciated and obeyed and loved with joy and faith. I said it last week, I'll say it again. The wisdom in the book of Proverbs is designed not for just anybody, but primarily for those who have a confident, committed relationship to the people of God. And the only way that you can have that, folks, is through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no man comes to the Father but by me. The only way that you can stand in that covenant relationship to God is through Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus alone can take our place and remove our guilt and bring us into the family of God. But if you know that you're a part of God's family, if you know you're a child of God, and if you know he isn't going anywhere, then you've got a privileged position. You don't have to go with the gang because you already belong. Nevertheless, you must beware the seductive speech of those who want to bring you in on their violent schemes. Notice not only the son's position, but secondly, the gang's pitch. The gang's pitch. We see this in verses 10 through 14. Here the father warns his son about a scenario he's likely to face when he leaves the house, strikes out on his own, enters the city, and begins to make decisions for himself where youth is no longer an excuse and choices have lasting impact. He says, son, it's coming. And when sinners entice you, it's going to happen. When they entice you, do not consent. Their pitch is expanded in the following verses. What is it that they're going to say? Notice the downward progression in verses 11 and 12. Here's the ask. Come with us. Let's lie and wait. See that progression? Let's ambush the innocent. Let's swallow them alive. Let's swallow them whole. The father's exposing the sinister nature of the gang. What does that sound like? What kind of predator lies in wait to ambush and then swallows its prey whole sometimes when it's still alive? What animal is he talking about here? A snake. Where have we heard that before? I mean, do you think that's an accident? No, Solomon and the other authors of the book of Proverbs, they're experts at crafting phrases. They know how to turn a phrase. And in this case, Solomon knows exactly what he's doing. He's exposing the nature of the gang. They are children of their father, the devil. That ancient serpent who slithered his way into the garden and lay in wait for unsuspecting Eve, that old enemy whom God promised would be destroyed by the seed of the woman. Here's the point. There are going to be people that you encounter who speak with the voice of the enemy. There are going to be people you encounter whose goal it is to fulfill the will of their father below. And what they're asking you to do is ugly. Now, very rarely, they'll come out and they'll make it look as ugly as it really is. There are people out there. I mean, we see them on the internet. They're, they just, they want to film themselves assaulting, assaulting an innocent person. They're out there. But most of the time, the appeal of the gang is going to be a little more subtle. 
but they reassure you. No one's going to know. There's not going to be any consequences. Essentially, that's the meaning of this phrase. Let's, Let's ambush the innocent without reason. What that means is simply, what we're doing does not require any justification because no one's going to see, no one's going to know. We don't have to worry about God caring about what we're going to do. Do you see the real problem with the gang, these folks who want to invite you into their violent schemes? The real problem goes back to chapter 1, verse 7. What, what are they missing? They have no fear of God. They do not accept the notion that God is present, powerful, and pure. And so they have no fear of God. The only thing driving them is a desire for easy money, and they've sunk so low that according to Proverbs chapter 4, verse 16, they can't even sleep until they've made someone stumble. It's just a part of who they are. I don't know if you appreciate, whether you're young and inexperienced or you're old and wise, just how zealous these sinners are to get you to join them. Think about the chief priests and the scribes and all the crowds around the cross. They want you to come along. They want you to join their scheme. Why is that? It seems to me that the existence of an innocent and uncommitted youngster is a chance to salve their own tortured conscience. They don't like how you make them look and feel. They aren't going to live and let live. They don't want to accept the reality of their own guilt. They aren't going to say, I'll live out my values and you live out your values. That's not reality. They want you to join. They're going to keep pressing and pushing. They're going to keep asking for compromise. They want you to call evil good and good evil right along with them. The gang, wicked people who suppress the fear of God and greedily grasp for present pleasure at everyone else's expense. They cannot stand the presence of a righteous person. They will not rest until you affirm them, celebrate them, Join them in their wickedness. There is no compromise. Don't make the mistake of thinking, hey, there, there are five or six legitimate ways to look at life. I think the biblical way, that's kind of how I like to shape my decisions. This other person, he kind of makes decisions based on some secular values. This other person over here, maybe they have a different set of values. That's okay. Everybody's kind of equal and we all have our own commitments and we need to just live and let live. No, Recognize that Satan is attempting to trick you into legitimizing the wicked rebellion of his children. Notice as well that while the ask is jarringly violent, the gang offers two arguments that appeal to all of us. They make it sound good. Two ways they pitch it to you. Look at verse 13. They say, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Here's the bait. Come with us and you'll be rich. Do what we're doing and you'll be able to buy everything you want. That's argument number one. You'll be rich. Throughout the book of Proverbs, we're warned again and again not to covet unearned wealth, a windfall. Do not desire wealth that you did not work for. Notice argument number one, you'll be rich. Argument number two in in verse 14, you'll belong. Look at verse 14. Throw in your lot among us, we will all have one purse. You'll be one of us. You'll fit in. You'll belong. 
Counterfeit wealth, counterfeit community. That's the appeal of the gang. You join us in whatever we're doing. You call evil good and good evil. You celebrate sin. You take advantage of others without consequence. And you will get two things. You'll be rich and you'll belong. Now, when presented by the Father in this text, it's pretty obvious that this is not worth it, right? I mean, he's making it really clear for his son. He shows the gang in all of its ugliness. But in real life, be honest with yourself. How many decisions are you tempted to make on the basis of these two arguments? You'll be rich, you'll belong. Isn't it the case that so many of the decisions you've made or been tempted to make are based on these two things, whether it's going to make you money or whether it's the cool thing to do? Isn't it true that when the allure of easy money and popularity present themselves to you, that it's all too tempting to begin to compromise your values and your commitment to the word of God? Some of you right now are working for an employer that you have no business working for. And the reason is because you wanted to be rich or you wanted to belong. Some of you have put your own children in situations that are harmful for their souls because you as a parent wanted them to be rich or you wanted them to belong. Some of you have perhaps entered into business partnerships with dishonest and lecherous men because you wanted to be rich or you wanted to belong. Beware of easy money and the approval of the crowd. Don't go with the gang. Young people, isn't it true that when your parents get on your case about your room or your outfit or your habits or your grades, you can take those things in stride. You might not like it. You might push back a little bit. But if they meddle in your relationships, the group that you've chosen to go with, that's a whole different story. If they say one word about your buddies, you're 10 times more defensive. Why is that? Well, when you're older, it might be because you want to get rich. But when you're younger, it might be because you want to belong, right? All I'm saying is that we must recognize the appeal of the gang. It's a powerful appeal. And if you're not on guard, before you know it, your desire for counterfeit wealth and counterfeit community is going to lead you down a path that you do not want to go down. If the fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom, as we saw last week, then the first course of bricks that you lay right on top of that foundation is to avoid the appeal of the gang. But the father isn't done. He really wants to expose his son the darkness to the darkness and the danger of going with the gang. So notice with me from verses 15 through 19, not just the son's position, the gang's pitch, but thirdly, the father's plea. The father's plea. He's already told his son, do not consent. And then in verses 15 through 19, he intensifies emotionally that command. He says, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. In other words, don't even go near these violent men. Don't entertain their arguments. Don't leave them space to seduce you with their deadly pitch. Don't even take one step in their direction. How many foolish men and women and young people have thought, I'll just give them a listen. I'll just do some due diligence and find out a little bit more about what he's saying. You know, just because she's hurting people in this area of life doesn't mean that her ideas aren't worth embracing in that area of life. 
And one by one, little by little, step by step, justification after justification, the simple son is seduced into following the gang. The path looks clear. The way looks safe. Nobody seems to care. No one seems to be watching. There don't seem to be any consequences. And all of a sudden, the hook is set. And like a dumb trout being dragged to his death, so a fool is carried away by these little compromises. The father says, don't go near their path. Don't go in their footsteps. Don't say, well, it's just texting. It's just an online relationship. It's just somebody that I play Xbox games with. I don't even know their real name. No, don't go in their steps at all. Why? Three reasons. First of all, notice from verse 16, because these people are depraved. They are depraved. He says their feet run to evil. What is the father saying? He's saying, don't get confused, my son. Don't get tripped up by their crafty arguments. Don't be seduced by this invitation to be rich or belong. Call evil, evil. Call good, good. Agree with God about the difference between right and wrong. Have you ever stopped to think about the subtle ways the world redefines morality in order to justify the wickedness of the gang? Don't be naive about these things. We've been doing it for so long that we barely recognize it. He's not a liar. It's just you can't take anything he says seriously. She's not an adulterer. She was just in an emotionally unfulfilling marriage, and she just went to a place where she could get that emotional fulfillment that she was missing in her own marriage. She found it in somebody else's arms. It wasn't adultery. It was an affair. Taxation is theft. So it's okay to avoid them if you can get away with it. Nobody's going to see or know. Let's not even get into the ways that both renters and landlords, employees and employers, rich and poor, use the finer points of our laws to defraud one another. It's perfectly legal. Have you ever heard anybody say that? It's legal. Here's a translation. God won't see, God won't know, God won't care. Don't for a second think that what you're doing is innocent or harmless or a victimless crime. A lot of people have their life shortened because of someone else's greed. Stay away from people who twist morality, first of all, because they're depraved, secondly, because they are dumb. They are dumb. They're idiots. They're stupid. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. I actually saw this the last time I was at the zoo. The zookeeper was in the cage with the bird, and he had a net, and he was trying to capture the bird. Do you know what birds do if you try to capture them with a bird net or whatever? They, they do exactly what you would expect. They see the net, and they fly away. And you could tell on the face of this zookeeper guy that what he was doing was in vain. It it wasn't going to work. In vain is a net spread in the sight of any 
bird, even a bird knows to stay away from a snare. You have to trick them. But these sinners, what do they do? They actually set the trap themselves and then walk right into it. They're dumber than bird brains. You ever know anybody like this? They know how to make money. They always have an idea. They're always one lucky break away from a windfall, but what always happens? What always happens? They always lose it all. And they hurt a lot of people in the process. Do not go with those who promise quick and easy wealth. There are a lot of them. Their words are very popular. It's funny, when we were in Thailand a few weeks ago, we ended up looking in a bookstore and some of the same self-help, silly, get-rich-quick type books are on the shelves in Thailand as there are in the U.S. It's just translated into Central Thai. But listen, these guys are dumb. They are telling you you can have wealth without working hard. It doesn't take a genius to know that at best they're selling snake oil and at worst they're teaching you how to cheat somebody else out of the money in their pocket. They're laying a trap for themselves. And even if they get away with it in this life, that's not the final judgment. They'll have their day before the throne of God, before a judge who remembers every deed and discerns every motive. Don't go with the gang because they are depraved, because they are dumb. Thirdly, don't go with the gang because they are doomed. They're doomed. This is the father's plea to his son. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Throughout the book of Proverbs, we're constantly reminded that life is like a path or a road or a way on which we're walking. And, you know, it's pretty easy to understand that that road or that pathway represents our lifestyle, the choices that we make throughout every day. Those steps are like those decisions that we're making. But one of the things we need to remember about a road or a path is that that road leads somewhere. It has a destination. And the path of easy money, of joining hands in defiance against the Almighty, of taking advantage of the unsuspecting, if not abandoned, will lead to ultimate destruction. This is another principle of wisdom. Don't think about the beginning. Think about the end. Don't think about what's next, what's right in front of you. Think about the end result of the decisions that you're making right now. The beginning of all these different paths looks safe enough. The one who takes them imagines he is in control, but the path of easy money or unjust gain is a path that leads to death. This is what the father wants his son to understand. This is what all of us need to understand. If you're young and undecided, recognize that there is a path that leads to life and there is a path that leads to death. The stakes are high and they couldn't be higher. So you better choose the right path. Every one of us has to choose for him or herself. Even Jesus' closest friends had to choose how to respond to the gang, to those men who stood at the foot of the cross mocking. One day, not sure when or how, a man approached a young student whose name was Judas. He said, we've got a problem you can fix for us. We'll make it worth your while. You'll be one of us. We can lie in wait for the innocent without reason. Nobody will see. You won't need to defend yourself because no one will know. 
Young Judas heard the pitch. He considered the ask, weighed the arguments. He chose to ignore the wisdom of his spiritual authority. He began to justify his lust to be rich and his desire to belong. The gang couldn't stand the presence of a righteous one among them. They were going to do what it took to destroy the Son of God. And Judas took the bait and he swallowed the hook and he betrayed the Lord Jesus and immediately regretted his foolish decision. But the trap was already sprung. It was already too late. Judas didn't start out that way. He he was just a simple, uncommitted, undecided young man. He had a lot of potential, a lot of promise. But he took a first step along a certain path, and then the next step, and the next step. And before he knew it, it was too late. Friends, the stakes are life and death. Judas doesn't have another chance, but we do. It's not just the whispers of the gang we hear, but the invitation of the Savior. Think about this. Compare the appeal of the gang with the career of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gang wanted to ambush the innocent without cause. They wanted to destroy someone who didn't deserve it. But what does Jesus do? Instead of ambushing those who don't deserve it, Jesus offers forgiveness for those who don't deserve it. The gang wants to swallow the innocent alive and take them down to the grave. But Jesus went to the grave himself so that we might live. The gang wants to plunder the weak and take advantage of the innocent. Jesus desires to plunder the kingdom of Satan. To take men and women sold in slavery to sin and buy them back and make them treasures in the household of God by his mercy and his grace. The gang covets the wealth of others. Jesus being rich became poor for us. How foolish is it to listen to the gang's pitch when we have the words of Jesus Christ? You remember what he says in the gospel of Mark? Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. You want to be rich? Finding Jesus is like finding a treasure in a field worth more than all the treasures this world could ever afford. With joy, you can trade all that you have in order to have Christ. His wages don't wear out and his table is never empty. Wise is the man who treasures Christ above all the riches of the world. For our sakes, he became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. You want to be rich? You need Jesus. You want to be belong? No man who gives up the gang in order to follow Jesus finds himself alone, but will be welcomed not as a guest, not as a partner, not as an employee, but as a son or a daughter in the kingdom of God. I'm not saying it's easy to be a Christian, that it's easy to follow Christ. That's not what I'm saying at all. But when you come to the end of the path, you will see. You will look back and you'll see that it was worth it all to follow Christ. That it was worth it to say no to greed and covetousness. Worth it to say no to the gang and to say yes to a wonderful Savior. It's like the writer of the Hebrews said. He said, let your way of life be free from the love of money. Why? Because he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The prophet says, come, everyone who thirsts, 
come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. The invitation of Jesus is far better than the gang's pitch. Don't go with the gang, go with Jesus. Would you pray with me now? Father, I ask that every one of us might be found, bowed in worship at the foot of the cross rather than standing mocking you with the gang. As you're bowed before the Lord, I want to pause and ask a question. Is it possible that you've allowed yourself to listen to the gang's pitch, to walk in their way? What, what I'm asking is this, is there anybody in your life that really doesn't have any business being in your life? Is it possible that you've got more of an ear for the arguments of the world than the truths of the word? I'm not asking you to shun the people in your life, to ghost them, to treat them unkindly in any way, but it's time to stop listening to those who speak with the voice of the enemy. Today's the day to cut those voices out. And I just want to challenge you right now to say, Father, I'm, I'm listening to your warning. I'm listening to your plea. I don't want to go with the gang anymore. I don't want to listen to those voices anymore. Would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? Would you give me the wisdom and the strength to make a change? Maybe you're here this morning, and the reason why the voice of the gang seems so appealing is because you didn't realize that it's just a counterfeit version of the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ to you. Here's what Jesus says, turn to me, believe in me, believe in your heart that I died for your sin and rose again. I'm alive, I'm offering you full, free forgiveness. No matter what you did, no matter who you are, no matter how old you are, turn away from all of that and believe in me. If that's you, there's no need to wait. You can call out to Christ right now in this moment. He's not far away. He hears what's in your heart. Call out to him in your heart today and say, Jesus, I need to be saved. I need to be rescued. I'm on the path of sin, the path that leads to death. Would you forgive me and put me on the path that leads to life? Father, this is our prayer today for any who are far from you. And for those of us who uh, need to make a decision today, I pray that you would give us the courage and the power to do so by the strength of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.